is Shinaito. I'm Asami, your host. And today we're missing Masako.、Uh, she has a real job, and I am currently fun employed. You know, fun plus unemployed. Fun employed? Yeah.、Um, so I have all the time in the world, and she doesn't. So I'm doing this episode by myself. Uh, and the reason why I wanted to record this episode is because, yes, it's that time of the month.、Uh, 6月の科学系ポッドキャストの企画は、えっと、町内細菌相談室の鈴木大輔さんがホストしてくださっています。テーマは観測ということで、Observation、uh, is the theme of the month. And I gave some thoughts about, you know, What observation means to me? What can I talk about it? Because, yeah, as a scientist, we do this every day, but we don't really, you know, deeply think about these things. So, this was a great topic, and thank you, Daisuke san, for uh, uh, suggesting this topic.、Um, so, I figure why not?、Uh, why don't I share、uh, a thing or two about what I think of observation specifically to my field since I'm Solo recording today.、Um, so let's go.、Um, so, in the past, I may have mentioned、uh, in the past episodes that I am in a field of ultra fast molecular dynamics. And now I know it sounds kind of fancy and perhaps scary、uh, or intimidating, but let, let me break it down so that you will realize that this is just kind of a fancy way to. Describe a very simple concept, although the experiment is very far from simple. But、um, let's start from, you know, in chemistry, which is sort of the larger umbrella field, right? Like ultra fast molecular dynamics belongs to the chemistry field. And、um, so in chemistry, I think we can categorize in a few ways. What we're trying to observe, depending on the purpose of our observation, like, you know, the why, why of、uh, observation. So, why do you want to observe things?、Um, so, I came up with four categories. I don't think that's, that encompasses everything, but, you know, I came up with this in 30 seconds, so bear with me.、Um, so, number one, In chemistry, we typically want to characterize and identify the structure of the molecules or some kind of signatures of the molecule because you know, you make a new molecule or you come up with a new ways to make a molecule and you want to make sure you want to know、um, what you made at the end of this process, right? So、um, that's why we sort of do some kind of observation.、Um, number two,、um, Is a category where you can identify, you want to identify something that is very low in quantity and you need some special observation tools for that.、Um, this might be the case、uh, of trace detection. So you know that the molecule or、uh, something of an interest is in a mixture of this thing, but you know that it exists in a very, very small quantity. So you're trying to look for the signal. Of that molecule in a tiny, tiny signal in a very large sample size. So that's a challenge. 
a different kind of challenge and observation. Number three, uh, you're trying to capture something that has very small probability of occurrence. So um, you're trying to capture an event that happens very rarely, a reaction that usually doesn't happen, or um, some kind of chemical process that doesn't happen unless it is specifically triggered in a certain way. So those are kind of rare events category that I think about. Um, and that's another difficult challenge, right? You have, you do some kind of experiment, you know that the probability of it happening by quantum mechanics, right? Not, not, not because you suck at experiment, but by, by laws of nature, it happens so infrequently. And that's why the observation is difficult. Um, so that's category three. And category four um, is you're trying to capture something that has a very short lifetime. So it happens, but it happens so quickly, so quickly in fact, that it's barely conceivable by a human eyes or sometimes your observation tool's eyes. So those are sort of the four categories. And ultra-fast molecular dynamics uh, kind of combines the last category with any of the one of the three that I mentioned earlier. So we're in a business of trying to look at things uh, that happens very quickly and that thing that we're trying to look for are very, very small, like atomic scales, um, movement, or change in structure that is very, very subtle. Um, in our field, we have been able to see things like ring opening reaction, you know, cy cyclohexadiene opening up to hexatriene, uh, or isomerization reaction, and um, anything that has structural change associated with a lifetime of less than one nanoseconds can be sort of loosely defined as a part of ultrafast molecular dynamics. Um, but so it's really only recently, like what's fascinating about this field is that it's really only recently that we have been able to observe ultrafast phenomena at all. You know, in order to observe the ultrafast phenomena, we needed to have the ultrafast tools you know, to be able to capture that moment and have a technique that lets you do that. And we have had uh, mainly two big hurdles to overcome in my field, um, ultra-fast uh, molecular dynamics. So the two hurdles are a temporal resolution challenge and the, and, and the spatial resolution challenge. So for the rest of this episode, I'll talk about the temporal resolution challenge. So, jikan jiku no genkai o motomete risachi shite ano tekniku o eto mite ikimasu. Wow, that Japanese sucked. Bear with me once again. Um, anyways, so we wanted to see something that happens very, very fast. So in order to do that, we needed something that can capture the molecule at the fast speed, fast rate, one, one can say. Um, and the technique that we rely on 
uh, is ultra-fast laser technology. Uh, we could not do our research without this. So briefly, I wanted to sort of go over the mini history of um, ultra-fast laser technology development. So I think it really started um, in the you know 1950s, 60s, when people started to be interested in not just the beginning product, the starting product, and the end product of the chemistry, but people started to ask questions like, how does chemistry take place, right? Um, and coincidentally, we uh, had ultra-fast laser technology developing at the same time. So in the 1960s, uh, the development of mode locking technique enabled the production of stable and precise, but also uh, regularly spaced pulse trains. And this is how most post post laser today is being seeded. And um, this, yeah, without without going too too technical, I don't want to go too technical about it. But it's basically a clock of the ultra fast lasers so a clock needs to tick and talk at a regular interval and you don't want a clock that ticks sometimes at one second but some other times at three seconds you want a clock that ticks and talks at every second and the precision of that one second is basically determined by mode locked laser uh, and in you know you can imagine that the time scale of interest you're trying to go for is 10, you know, tens of femtoseconds. And by the way, femtoseconds is um, one second is equal to 10 to the negative 15 femtoseconds. So, wait, that's the other way around. Um, one femtosecond is equal to 10 to the negative 15 seconds. So, um, that is very, 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 very fast. It's all you need to know. Anyway, so we wanted a really precise clock. In 1960s, we managed to get that. But that's not the only thing we needed, right? A major breakthrough in ultra-fast laser technology came in the 1980s with the development of this technique called chirped pulse amplification. So basically, in this technique, it lets you generate a very, very short, well, ultra short pulses by first stretching the pulse in time domain amplify that stretched out pulse in the series of amplification uh, you know there's many different ways to amplify a pulse uh, you know you could use region amplifier or single pass amplifier there, there are many ways but we don't need to get into that and but anyway, we, we stretch, we amplify, and then we compress at the very end of the process, which lets you have a high intensity, high energy, ultra short pulses. And this technology uh, is simple in conception, uh, very, very non-trivial in the physics of it all. And this technology was pioneered by uh, Gerard Moreau and Donna Strickland, uh, who by the way, Donna Strickland probably deserves a whole ass episode on her own because she not only was only a grad student when she worked on this project with Moreau, uh, 
you know, her Nobel Prize winning project was in her grad school days, which is bonkers to think about. Uh, this Nobel Prize was recognized in 1985, but she was only a thir- the third woman to be awarded the Nobel Prize in physics. Um, any guesses on who were the first and the second? Um, well, first one uh, is Marie Curie in 1903. Second one is Maria Gopermeyer in 1963. So 60 years after the first one, second one came through. And it thankfully didn't take that long, but still took a long time, 1985, to get to the third person. That just, you know, in today's standard, pretty insane, but um, it just goes to show how far we've come, you know, women in science, very proud of it. Um, but that's another episode on their own, so I digress. Um, anyway, so, alright, where are we? We figured out how to make intense, high-intensity, super short pulses. Alright, now what, right? And... I'll tell you now what. Um, so during 1980s and 1990s, so you know we're coming pretty close to the, you know today's um, time, but uh, we started to we we discovered this thing called titanium doped sapphire, uh, and that became sort of like a workhorse of uh, ultrafast lasers. Um, so this titanium doped sapphire, uh, we typically in the field call Thai sapphire laser. Um, so what is this titanium doped sapphire doing in the laser, right? So it's, without again getting too technical, this is uh, a part of the laser that's called game medium, and that's where the lasing of the laser takes place. Um, by the way, um, did you know that the word laser is an acronym? No. Laser no L-A-S-E-R であの、言葉じゃなかったんですよ、最初は。あの、最初は略語だ、略称だったんですね。何か分かった方がいたら、ぜひツイッターで教えてください。Anyway. Again, uh, so, well, it's, it's basically just a very, very important part of the laser. And depending on what... Uh, game mediums you use, uh, you get access to different energy or different wavelength, probably more importantly. Uh, and Thai Sapphire just lets you have a whole options of tunability and thanks to the pump sources that became you know way more efficient and reliable like diode laser at this time of the, uh, at this time around. Um, you know Thai Sapphire Thai Saf laser became uh, you know, a household, or I should say, <laughs> lab hold staple instrument. Um, and in my lab in grad school, uh, I also had a Thai sapphire laser. The Thai sapphire it- itself, uh, it's this beautiful pink crystal. Um, and it's kind of fun to see. Yeah, see, see that you can see that the doping makes the, the sapphire pink. So that's interesting. Anyway. Um, and lastly, right, so we're back where we're up to 1990s. Um, you know, in like the 90s to 2000s and onwards, um, the advance, the advancement of nonlinear optics and pulse shaping techniques in the late 20th century, 
um, also enhance the ultra-fast laser specs. So uh, I, again, don't want to go too, too technical, but uh, basically what that means is that now we can have very fast pulse in different wavelengths, uh, have a huge wavelength uh, accessibility now thanks to techniques like parametric, parametric amplifications. Um, so, you know, lasers today, you can have access from, you know, deep UV, like 195 nanometers to IR, like 1500 nanometers easily from just a one Thai sapphire laser. So that's really, uh, useful and helpful for chemistry, uh, experiments because you want to, you know, molecules have some absorption cross section and you want to make sure if you're hitting it with a laser that the laser's photon is properly absorbed by the molecule. So typically you want to target the wavelength and that's very helpful for this experiment. And um, yeah, and, and uh, what did I say? So different wavelengths and we can also have a precise sort of manipulation of temporal and energy profile of the laser pulse as well. Uh, and this again was also very important for ultrafast molecular dynamics. And more recently, we have entered the era of fiber-based ultrafast lasers. So um, none of the other complicated stuff beforehand, you just seed the, seed the light uh, through a fiber so, so, hikari fiber de yaru laser no koto nan dakedo. Um, this is, again, um, sort of like a still a development, developing field, although, uh, the portability and stability and amazing tunability, you know, from deep, deep UV to, uh, longer wavelengths have, uh, just became, you know, extremely helpful and, uh, I think for the future, this is sort of the direction we're going for, um, rather than going through the whole, you know, parametric amplifications and other many, many steps that requires uh, for the pulse to be generated. Phew, okay, um, yeah, so that is a lot. I think this is the most technical episode yet. Uh, but so that's the story of the temporal challenge, why we wanted to go for ultra short, uh, pulses in order to look at ultra fast molecular dynamics. That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening and find us at Eigode Science on Twitter. That is E-I-G-O-D-E-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. See you next time.